Are we here to recreate ourselves? We've got another great interview for you today on Mind Matters News. This week, we revisit our conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Simmons about design, consciousness, and the future of AI. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Marks. Greetings. Today, we're going to talk about a book by Dr. Jeffrey Simmons. It's entitled, Are We Here to Recreate Ourselves? The Convergence of Design. Dr. Simmons is a fascinating guy. He's a retired medical doctor who has over 40 years of specialization in internal medicine, and he's written a number of books, both fiction and nonfiction. I just learned about one of his books, Common Sense and Disaster Preparedness. My wife, I told Dr. Simmons, is a big fan of the television reality show Preppers, and it sounds like they do a lot of disaster preparation there. Uh, in, in nonfiction world, his book Z Papers has sold over 350,000 copies and was selected by, number one, the Detective Book Club of the Month, and number two, Reader's Digest. Dr. Simmons' nonfiction's books include Billions of Missing Links, that critiques gaps in evolutionary records. We'll put a link to Dr. Simmons' book and his list of books on the podcast notes. But his latest nonfiction book that we're here to talk about today asks the serious question, are we here to create ourselves? Dr. Simmons, welcome to Mind Matters News. Yes, thanks for having me. You know, I, when I first read the title of your book, I think I shared with you, I was a little skeptical, but I have to admit, after reading your book, I, I really like it. I think that it's very informative. It has details. It has uh, lots of references to external material, and I would recommend it to anybody that would like to read it. It's called, Are We Here to Recreate Ourselves? The Convergence of Designs. So let me, let's start out with a, with a basic premise. What's the main premise of your book? Are, are we here to recreate ourselves? And indeed, I think we are. Uh, I've been writing books on, on intelligent design, and I have three international blogs as well, uh, for about 10, maybe 14 years, thereabouts. And I've been writing about convergence of designs in people, in humans, and other biological entities. And it never occurred to me uh, back then that actually I think we are doing that now and have been for a long time in the making of our, or remaking ourselves. Um, I find that in, look, if I don't mind me diverting to intelligent design for a moment, just to set the pattern here, is in intelligent design, we see design for sure. We see purpose, we see foresight, and we see engineering. And we see that different designs converge to form a human being. For instance, I, I talk about cardiovascular, the heart and the circulation, and that's one design that's going on. Actually, one could break that down even further. And then, but it converges into the design of the brain and the nerves, and, and they combine in part to form a human being. And then you have the kidney function, and, and you have the immunology, and, and you have the musculoskeletal, and you have integument, which is skin. All these patterns or these designs converge in the, in the fetus to form a human being. And, and it's very interesting for me, at least, to follow uh, this convergence. And so I, I kind of, I like to read science fiction. I write science fiction. I like to read a lot of science itself. And I started to dawn on me, and it's really not a, it's really sort of a no-brainer, I, I think, 
th there's a pattern of us converging designs in where we're going to make uh, humanoids and robots and to recreate ourselves. Um, and so that's kind of where the book is, is coming and going. The other thing is I, I delve into purpose. If something is designed like a human being or any animal, is there a purpose to this? I mean, is there a reason? I mean, we don't design things uh, technologically uh, in our modern world without a purpose. And so if we're designed, one has to ask, I think, is there a purpose? And a lot of philosophers and a lot of other folks have dealt with the purpose of, of, of human beings, you know, pursue happiness, help others, glorify God, raise a family, stay healthy, dominion of the animals. But we see a definite pattern of growth. We see a pattern of a, a way of birth. We see a pattern of shelf life, human shelf life, uh, and a definite way of changing through life. There's, there's clear-cut patterns. There's clear-cut design. And it's all convergence of designs. Your eyes were designed uh, to converge, in a sense, with your ears, with your thinking, with your, your mouth, with your activity. So we're just a collection of, I think, a converging designs. That's a the long answer to your question. You know, I had a grandfather who had a third grade education who told me once, there's really nothing that people have done in terms of invention and stuff that hasn't been done by nature yet. We spend a lot of time copying nature in the things that we do. So when I first looked at your book, let me have a confession. Are we here to recreate ourselves? Ray Kurzweil wrote a book called The Singularity is Near. Right. And in there, he makes the supposition that we, have you read the book? It's been a while, but I've read it and I've read other things by him. I had a hard time getting through it because of all the hyperbolic assumptions that he made. But his premise, one of his premises is, is that evolution happens and we've evolved to the point where we can't evolve anymore. So therefore, we have to create artificial intelligence as the next step of human evolution, mm -hmm. and that's going to take over. That's going to augment us and do do other things of that sort. So um, that's in that's in distinct contrast to your book and what you've what you've written. So with that, why did why did you write the book? Well, just that. First of all, I love writing, so that's the first start. It's a huge hobby of mine. I'm not a golfer, tennis player. And so I love to write. A lot of my friends are writers. And so I, my knack is to look for things to write. And this kind of just jumped off the page. It kind of fit because I wrote, the first book I wrote was what Darwin didn't know. And that went for about 11 printings. And that did so well, the publishers asked me to do another one. That was Billions of Missing Links. And so then I got into this area. They weren't as interested in this when I proposed it. So we, I went a different route with pursuing a publication, but at the same time, I had to pursue it. I mean, it just, nobody is saying it exactly the way I'm saying it. We're recreating exactly how we were created. And it also, I think, shows how intelligent design might happen, for lack of another word, how it might evolve. Uh, but we're not evolved. I mean, that's a huge argument in and of itself. But I, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we are... Uh, convergence of designs all our whole body is the way our legs work have to do with the, the design in our muscles and the design in our nerves and the design in our brain and what our eyes saw so the same thing has to go into uh, humanoids and so then one adds in I'm being I like science fiction so I've always been interested in robots and humanoids and movies about the such and if we're going to outer space for one I can't help but think 
human, I'm a biologist. I don't think humans are ever going to be able to do this. They're going to have to come up with some other technology that is not evident at this time. I, I don't think we can uh, have a human go into suspended animation for 20, 30 years on a trial basis to see if it works and if they come out alive on the other end. Indeed, 20 years into it, everything will change so much that they'll probably just abandon the experiment and see if you wake up. (laughs) So I can't see the experimentation happening. I also, I just don't think we're going to go, unless we get the speed of light or uh, wormholes or some technology we can't think of, I, I can't see us ever having the time to get to something that's a million light years away. Whereas robots, uh, sure, you know, you don't have to put them asleep, you just turn them off, I guess. Uh, So I think what we've done is we're recreating ourselves and to go to outer space, why not look like us and why not sound like us and why not do things like us if we're gonna, you know, have them represent us. And so I I see that as an absolute, Thing to happen in the in, in the future, but we also, as you know, you're an expert in this area, robots and computer science. But all the drudgery works, you know, uh, you can't get people to want to do those. Uh, all the nuclear power plants uh, cleanup, especially the one in Japan that uh, was destroyed, you have to have non-humans doing this and sometimes it takes something that looks like and acts like a human sometimes it's just something rolling with arms or uh, you can manage with a a radio Uh, the police need robotic uh, robots for the future with bombs and and all kinds of accidents firemen can use robots it it goes on and on how the benefits of having robots so what when do we need them to look like us well maybe in medicine which is my area of expertise. And I think uh, counselors down the road, are, we're already doing this, talking to into a box, uh, but we're going to have humanoids probably doing counseling with people. Um, Do you really think that counseling can be done well by artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's it's going to be a challenge. I, I'm skeptical. Yeah, I, I'll tell you what they can do because they're already doing some of it. You know, it's basically checking off the boxes. And if you get so many boxes, you know, seven out of eight or something, you're depressed. <laughs> and, and then you make sure, you know, they're not suicidal. They're not suicidal. You prescribe this medication. It's a recipe. But a lot of people who are needing psychiatric care just need someone, someone to talk to. And so they can fulfill that role probably. Well, they can they understand some of our emotions? Probably not. I mean, they may be able to fake it, but I don't think they can understand our emotions. I, I don't think this the whole can they show compassion? Wow, I don't think so. I, I don't think so either. I think they can fake compassion, but I don't think they yeah. can actually feel any sort of compassion. You mentioned you mentioned robots in space. Come to think of it, we've had robots on Mars already. Right. So I think your prophecy has already been fulfilled, except you were, you're thinking more about deep space sort of exploration. Absolutely. Something I learned in your book, Jeff, was about, was about space brain. I'd never heard of that before as a deterrent for human flight. That, that's amazing. Tell us what space brain is. Well, it's a new, new documented phenomenon. They can actually see changes on MRIs in astronauts where they've got pinged in some way with uh, cosmic rays or the like. And uh, I think if somebody's in outer space for extremely long periods of time and they only have the protection that we know of at this point, uh, 
there's going to is likely brain damage and uh, another reason not to go to deep deep space so space brain is due to cosmic rays we're wonderfully designed according to Guillermo Gonzalez that our atmosphere and our magnetic uh, poles deflect these cosmic rays and they actually go around the earth instead of to the surface and so we escape all of the negative things that happen from cosmic rays but when you're in space that doesn't happen and i think that's what you're saying happens to the brain as we go in outer space that is really fascinating i think we're designed to be here that's a good point i'm wondering if in the spaceship they could actually put around a faraday cage or something like that to block the cosmic rays that might be something that has to be done in the future i'm not sure what patterns do you see heading toward the perfection of humanoids and ai well, I think we're going to go down the path of science fiction movies in some regard. They're going to look like us at some point, and they're going to sound a lot like us, and, and, and they're going to fool a whole bunch of us. But I think if you're on the phone or on some kind of speaker system, it's a little harder to know whether you're talking to a person or not. It will be. But, you know, Turing, uh, uh, Professor Turing talked about a test that you know you to see if uh, you're talking to AI or uh, a real person. I think they're going to get better than what he even envisioned. But uh, they still, I don't know if they'll ever be able to pick up the timing on a joke, um, and I don't think they'll be able to understand some of our feelings. I mean, they may have some rote answers. If you're face to face with a humanoid, I mean, I joke about it in my book and I joke about it in my talks, but you carry a safety pin and say, ask him, can I stick your finger? I want to see if you bleed. And there's, there's your test. Uh, <laughs> or can I feel your skin and see what temperature you are? I mean, so there's a, a few ways that are biologically to get around this, but they're going to be good at fooling us. But I, I think there'll be plenty of ways to tell for a, a long time, certainly while you and I are alive. Excellent. Um, you say in your book, and I think this dovetails with exactly what you say, but here's a quote from your book. It says, machines will never fall in love with each other. They will never say a prayer in earnest, and they will never comprehend their own death. Now, never is for a long time. Do you believe that that's true, that they will never do that? Uh, well, they can talk about their own death. I suppose they can talk about running out of grease or oil and and, and rust of some sort, but uh can they really get down to a conversation of what death means other than rote answers? I don't think so. Um, prayer? Well, they can say a prayer. And I noticed that you said they never say a prayer in earnest. Right. So that's a that's a nice phrase to put in there. I agree with you, Jeff. I don't think that artificial intelligence will ever be creative. I don't think it'll ever have sentience. I don't think it'll ever understand what it does. I think it can add the numbers three and four, but it won't understand what the numbers three and four are. And so, yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you on that. Another state from your, from your book, you say some might argue that lower animals lack consciousness with good reason. Could you elaborate on that? Do you think that, that animals are conscious? I guess, first of all, it depends on your dictionary and how you define consciousness. Yeah, I have a lot of uh, information on in my books, a couple chapters probably. I in past times people thought of animals not thinking, not having a conscious, uh, you know, just kill them and eat them or shoot them or whatever you do with animals and not worry about them. They're just kind of soft robotic individuals. But we now know a whole lot more, including bacteria 
they, I mean, they may not have a consciousness, but they do things that suggest thought. Consciousness to me, uh, and according to other people I've read, is first of all, the theory of mind, which basically is being aware that the other person also is able to make decisions and think and has uh, feelings. The theory of mind it is extremely important uh, for thinking. Uh, also, self-awareness itself, planning, imagining, playing, and having a language. I mean, you can't do these things without a language. So animals, you know, are on the short end of the stick, but not, they think, you know, this red, I don't know if you're familiar with the red spot test where um, they put a red spot on a certain kind of monkey and while he's kind of under anesthesia of some sort, doesn't know it doesn't know it happened. You mentioned this in your book. Yeah, and so they they, they have him stand sit in front of a mirror. If they go to wipe it off, uh, it suggests they have self awareness. And dolphins can do this kind of thing, and elephants can do this kind of thing, and so and there's a whole host of things that we're finding that they can think. They've done a lot of incredible studies with dolphins choosing the kind of food they want and how much and when. And it, it, I go through all the different groups of, from bacteria all the way up through lizards and fish where the some of the tests have shown that there is some kind of thinking going on. To our degree, probably not. But we don't know about dolphins yet. Uh, they may surprise us. We, we have been talking about your book, and I wanted to talk some more about it. You have one chapter, something called The Thinking Piece, and another one on The Memory Piece. And in there, you trace from one-cell organisms to humans. Can you kind of unpack that and give us some examples that highlight these capabilities? be glad to. Uh, as I mentioned a little earlier on the previous podcast, that we do see animals and all kinds of organisms having some ability that smacks of thinking, and indeed, you can uh, expose bacteria to uh, something scary and a light or anything like that, and then show that to their offspring, which are not offspring in the sense that we think of it, and, and, and they will go away from it. Now, is that thinking or is that, what is that? Is it a change in DNA? We see that kind of thing uh, with uh, with animals too, where the, it'll skip a generation. Epigenetics is the title to that. And we see that with uh, monkeys. Uh, we see that with a lot of problem solving. Monkeys are using tools. Uh, monkeys using mechanisms to get places like a stick for a cane or through water, getting across a, a creek. In other words, problem solving, coming up with something novel to solve a problem. You see it with crows. There's a whole bunch of sh shows on National Geographic, I think, TV, where they show animals doing these things. And crows can use sticks to get different items to eat. They can drop rocks in like a beaker to make the water level come up so they can get whatever it is that's floating on the top of the water. All these, it's something that they've never seen before. So it's not as if this is just in their genes or something maybe they learned long ago. They actually seem to think through what they're doing. And we, we do all that kind of stuff and more. And dolphins in particular and the whales and animals of the higher thinking capabilities 
there's lots of data on things that they do for thinking. I, I remember a study with dolphins choosing what food they wanted and how much they wanted and when they wanted it. And it is as if they were, they were thinking. We haven't learned to be able to talk to them yet. To I mean, it'd be wonderful if we could. But uh, I I think they're, they're very smart and uh, they're right up there with the top five in the world. And dogs, we all know our dogs think, goodness, I, my dogs think all the time. You know, they uh, <laughs> I, Most people who are dog owners would, would tell you that... Uh, Dogs have emotions and they think and, and they think through things, I think. It's too, it's too obvious. There's, a, there's a, a veterinarian who has written a book about dogs thinking. I think his name is Ernst, but I could be wrong. But be this as it may, they study these animals with MRIs, functional MRIs. They train the dogs to stay still and then mm-hmm. they, they show them certain things and they try to show that they're actually thinking about what they're showing them or asking them to do. Uh, it's very, very interesting stuff. One of the things that I wonder about uh, artificial intelligence is, well, concerns creativity. I don't believe artificial intelligence will ever be creative. And I'm joined in that arena by such notorious people such as Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft. He wrote a book, I think, called Hit Refresh, and also by the great Sir Roger Penrose, who wrote a phenomenal book called Shadows of the Mind, which challenged the idea that artificial intelligence could ever be creative. They said that creativity comes from a flash of genius, typically in the human being, or that's that's a common vehicle for it. You had a great quote in your book, which I thought was, yes, this is a micro flash of genius. You quoted Rush Limbaugh, and Rush Limbaugh said, that's one of the best questions I've ever asked myself. <laughs> It, it was it was kind of like this mind that was internal external to the brain that was conversing with itself. You also quoted Plato that said, "Thinking is the talking of the soul with itself." Yeah. So there's something happening there with thinking and creativity that is beyond probably what artificial intelligence will ever do. You know, that's a I find an extremely interesting area. Uh, I have in my book and my talks and other actually blogs too. Who's talking to whom? People always say, you know, I told myself all kinds of things along that line. I bawled myself out, uh, you know, and who's talking to who? Is it the left brain talking to the right brain? Is it the soul talking to the body? Is it Freud's id ego and uh, super ego? Who or what in there is talking to themselves? In fact, people who have half a brain, uh, if they're young enough, they have brain removed because of epilepsy. Uh, have thinking almost similar to our own. I cannot say exactly if they say that or think that. So it's as if we could function with either half at a certain point in life and beyond. Who's talking to who? I, I go back to this Pinocchio movie where Jiminy Cricket is on one shoulder and Lampwick is on the other, and Lampwick's telling him to do bad things and Jiminy Cricket's telling him to do good things. And some of us think that's what's going on. Split personalities, are they really telling us what's in there? Are people who black out alcoholics who go on to drive cars and do other things, is that the other personalities come forward? I, there is something going on that we really can't explain. And so is this just some physical phenomenon, some mechanical, or is it the spark of life? Is it the soul? And uh, I, I think it's in part the soul or the spirit. The scientists try to explain how life came about with the Yuri Miller experiment that's 
kind of tired of hearing about it, but in actuality, they didn't prove anything there. And nobody understands where the spark of life comes from. And yet we know it's there. We know it's there. And uh, I, I don't think we can be creative without that spark of life. Yes. You know, the, the, speaking about the Miller-Urey experiment, um, I heard a good story about that recently in, in Dallas, where somebody that had, uh, was challenging the Miller-Urey experiment and exactly what it contributed to the origin of life, put a, a bowl of chicken soup next to a, uh, a chicken. And he says, now all we have to do after the Miller-Urey experiment is take, and take this chicken soup and make it into the chicken. <laughs> that's how far that they had to go in order to get something. But another thing is that people have challenged, including in the book by Thaxton, Bradley, and Olson, The Mystery of Life's Origin, which the Walter Bradley Center is re-releasing with lots of good augmented material, uh, talks about the Miller-Urey experiment and the fact they didn't even have the atmosphere right at the time. Right. So... All of their all of their conclusions were just totally bogus. I, I think I have that book. I think Discovery Institute sent me a copy, and uh, I think I'm, I have it to read on the nightstand. The good part about it, it was released 35 years ago, and a lot can happen in science in 35 years. So there's augmenting chapters by people such as Steve Myers and Jim Tour mm-hmm. and Jonathan Wells, and and that that it, it basically says that yeah, it's still a mystery. There is absolutely no idea or no clue where life originated from. Just fascinating stuff. You mentioned about people with a half a brain. That that is kind of goes back to Rush Limbaugh, doesn't it? And one of his one of his sayings that he talks with half of his brain tied behind his back. But <laughs> right. you know, the brain is fascinating. Michael Ignor actually talks about experiments. This is also epileptic where they actually do a split brain experiment and they actually this actually sever the right-hand portion of the brain with the left-hand portion of the brain. Right. And so there's no longer communication. Yet even after that happens, you have a person with a single personality. So it maybe suggests that there's something in the mind that is happening external to the brain. It's really mysterious stuff. It is. It is and it lacks an explanation. Yes. Well, thus far, maybe there's some things that can be done scientifically to shed more light on that. So final question from a sci-fi writer, and you do write science fiction, and a physician's perspective who writes nonfiction, how do you see AI playing out in the future? Uh, Not good in some instances. Um, Two of my books, actually three, four of my books, one is called The Atom Experiment, which has to do with childbirth and uh, outer space, the first time humans do that. One called Murdoch. These are old books. I mean, the technology in there is very old-fashioned. But Murdoch was a malevolent computer in a hospital. And then I have two spoofs, one called The Glue Factory, and one, the other one called The Glue or Not to Glue. Anyway, be it as it may, I talk about some of these issues in there. And I think AI in medicine is going to be a whole lot up to the programmer or the coder because I, I already see it in my profession and I don't like what I see. I mean, I, it already knows if I make a diagnosis of pneumonia, it knows not only you have to put a code down for pneumonia, but I also have to prescribe a certain antibiotic if it's a bacterial infection. So it are the machine, the electronic record already knows what I'm doing and it already has built in. If a diagnosis pneumonia is made, this is what should be tried first unless they're allergic, and this is what's tried second, and these are what tests you should do. So what would happen next is why didn't you do that? 
uh, why are you know congrats you followed our uh, what we told you to do and so not only would it be telling you what to do and watching you what you do but it'd also be tabulating what you do and I can just see at the end of the month uh, you know half the time you didn't listen to what you're supposed to do or something along that line to a doctor or to a nurse and if you keep this up coming from a computer you know you'll have to come explain yourself in front of so and so committee. And so we have more and more protocols. Uh, I retired, I think, almost in time to get out of most of this, but we have lots of protocols that come along. This this is what you do in this circumstance, and that's why actually we're having less doctors in the primary care and more nurses uh, and other technicians uh, who don't need to go through medical school to follow the recommendations of the computer. And so I, I just see it taking over. And if it, the more malevolent it is or the more attentive to the bottom line financially or whatever they're trying to prove or not prove, uh, I mean, it, it, there's all kinds of problems in medicine. I could write a whole book on it, except my writing somewhat is an escape in life. But you, they don't want the doc, and companies don't want the doctors who attract the complicated patients that take up time and cost a lot of money. Oh. They don't want the doctors who are capable of take care of those. And so their computers will be, their AI will be designed to look for that. The other thing is about AI is that it, it is helpful in some areas like pap smears. Uh, they have AI reviewing pap smears now. And after seeing 10,000 of these in preparation, it could spot problems and it's been shown this spot problems better than human beings can. If you have a skin lesion and it, I'm sure it's going to happen if, if not the science fiction part of me is that it, the machine will have visual capabilities and lights and it'll say, have them hold their forearm up in front of the, you know, the camera and then have them turn it right, left, whatever. Let me change some lights, make them blue and ultraviolet and everything else. And then it'll make a diagnosis for the doctor and it'll tell them what to do. And if the doctor doesn't want to do it, it'll keep track of uh, that you didn't want to do it. So I foresee all, I, I just know that's coming. It's already here in many senses. So it, from a medical perspective, I don't like what I'm seeing. At the same time, one could argue, well, medical care may be better. Medical care may be cheaper along you know, some of those things. But on average, with average stuff, it's wonderful. But when you get it, it, it's like making everybody in third grade pass with C's. We don't want any A students and we don't want any F students. And so I see AI making us all kind of mediocre and following orders. Hopefully, artificial intelligence will augment the skills of physicians. They will offer advice, but the final decision, I think, in all matters concerning artificial intelligence needs to be with the human being. You mentioned about automatic pap smears. Interesting background. I was an expert witness in a lawsuit between two companies that did automated classification of pap smears. They got it away from the cytologist who would spend a day looking through microscopes and get really sleepy at the end of the day and make false uh -huh. diagnosis. And yeah. these two companies, when both of them started making money, they sued each other. And one of them hired me as an expert witness. So I know all about that. And the interesting thing is that they got into big litigation. They exhausted all their money. And then as soon as they were poor, a third company came in and bought them both out and, uh, and, uh -huh. and the two companies went away. So that, that's what happens when you fight and are watched over by a third more powerful company. 
See, I don't see it entirely as benign and just being wonderful care. I think that's an offshoot, and it'll be common that people will get a diagnosis quicker and will probably get a care quicker that's good care. But I, I foresee this in the uh, administrative side of this, trying to control costs and control access and control employees. And I don't think it's going to feel good to those people. Well, th this is great. What, what a fun time to talk with you, Dr. Simmons. Uh, we've been talking to Dr. Jeffrey Simmons. He's a physician and he's the author of the new book, Are We Here to Recreate Ourselves? I've read it. I've recommended it. It's available on Amazon.com. Until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute. <laughs>